Weekly on Dublin Digital Radio. Hi, I'm Lizzie, and welcome to Current. Current is DDR's weekly podcast covering a range of social, political, and cultural issues. We want Current to be a conversation. Send us your stories and opinions, and please get in touch if you would like to be involved. We'll focus on a mix of topical issues and stories that have faded from headlines and news feeds. Current is an easily digestible overview and your space to get some understanding. Tweet us at at currentddr or email us at current at dubbindigitalradio.com. Well, among those performing at this evening's concert for Aung San Suu Kyi in Dublin is Bono of U2. As one of her long-time supporters, he travelled with her from Norway this afternoon. When we spoke earlier, I asked Bono what it meant to be able to welcome her to Dublin. Oh, we're so humbled, aren't we? I mean, the whole nation. Uh, it's an amazing thing to have her here in Dublin. And I'm also, in, in terms of the U2 tour. And so it is done. It has taken 12 years. But the Freedom of Dublin is awarded to Aung San Suu Kyi. Irish singer and human rights campaigner Bob Geldof has returned his Freedom of the City of Dublin award. He objects to sharing the honour with Myanmar's leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, saying her association with Ireland's capital shames us all. Aung San Suu Kyi was extravagantly welcomed um, to the city and it turned out that she's a killer. These scenes are causing a global impact. An exodus of Rohingya Muslim refugees fleeing security operations by the armed forces of Burma or Myanmar. Hey. Textbook, uh, textbook example of ethnic cleansing. This is how the UN's most senior human rights official described violence against Rohingya people in Myanmar. Olivia Hayden works with the International Organization for Migration, and she spoke to Current about her experiences in Myanmar. Um, hi, maybe could you just introduce yourself and tell us about the International Organization of Migration and what your role is there? Okay, hello. Um, my name is Olivia Hayden. I work for the International Organization for Migration, IOM, which is a part of the UN. In fact, it's actually the UN Migration Agency. Um, it's a massive organization with about 10,000 staff who work all around the field, mostly field-based, based, who are working to protect, assist and advocate for migrants, which includes people who are moving within their own country. Uh, maybe they're displaced because of a conflict or a natural disaster, as well as those who are displaced across international borders. So that would what we generally call refugees, as well as people who um, migrate for um, maybe more economic reasons reasons, uh, which is a bit more complex than just saying that, but uh, we can get into that another time. Um, and my role within the organisation is uh, that I'm the information officer for emergencies. So that means I work with uh, the media um, to get the information out about certain specific situations, particular humanitarian crises. Um, and I think that's what we're going to talk about today is one in particular that I've been uh, following for the last few months. Cool. Yeah, I was going to ask you what role in particular the IOM has had in Rohingya. Yeah, so basically um, since 2013, IOM has led the humanitarian response for the Rohingya crisis. Um, what is this crisis though? So basically um, for decades, 
a group of people have been subjugated by another group of people. So in Myanmar, um, also known as, I think, Burma to a lot of people in Ireland and England, uh, there is a state called Northern Rakhine State, which is quite chronically underdeveloped. And there are different groups of people who live in that state. You have Rakhine, you have uh, Burmese, uh, you have Rohingya, among a few others. Rohingya are ethnically and religiously unique from the rest of the people who live in that area. They're Muslim uh, as opposed to being Buddhist. Um, they also character- characteristically, they look a bit different. They dress a bit differently and they speak a different language. Uh, you see this in so many different places in the world. Because of that, they're singled out um, and they have been for a long time since uh the last, you know, 50 years or so, they've been subjugated to, to different forms of abuse. If it hasn't been violent, it's been economic. So since I think 2012, um, well, actually in the 90s, there was a, a massive uh, outbreak of violence or an upsurge in violence that led to uh, thousands of people crossing the border into its neighbour, Bangladesh, into an area called Cox's Bazaar in the 90s. At that time, there was a deal that was struck between the two countries and you were able to bring, or thousands were brought back uh, to to Myanmar and thousands were still left behind and they continue to live uh, in Bangladesh until this day. Then since 2012, uh, you had like um, some type of subjugation and oppression where Rohingya haven't been able to, for example, leave their their villages and go to the town. So their, their travel was restricted. Uh, massive taxes have been put on them uh, in terms of, you know, if you wanted to get married, you have to pay this much money. If you want to build a house or buy a house, you have to pay this much more money. So it's a type of, type of oppression specifically on this group of people. Then last October, October 2016, there was an upsurge in violence where um, about 80,000 people were forced to leave their homes because of extreme violence and cross into Bangladesh. Um, at that time, you we heard stories of women being raped, of villages being set on fire, babies being thrown into the villages, or into these village fires, um, men being murdered, um, and people just so scared that all they could do was just grab what they could and leave their houses immediately and walk or run until they reached uh, what they considered safety in Bangladesh. So that was last October. Now jump forward to this August, on the 25th of August, um, you had another upsurge in violence um, where you saw similar things to last October. We saw villages being set on fire, women being systematically raped, um, children being almost sacrificed for some type of uh, cause that no one is really sure what it is, um, and people being so scared again that they ha- they had to leave. Um, and this time it wasn't 80,000 people, it was in the first couple of weeks it was 100,000 people and now since then uh, I think it's been 655,000 people have fled their homes in Myanmar and Northern Rakhine State and made their way to Cox Bazar, Bangladesh. You recently, you spent some time in Rohingya yourself and could you tell us a bit about your experiences there while you were uh, there on the ground in the camps? Yeah, so I was, I went there um, with IOM last October and I spent about a month and a half uh, with the Rohingya in the refugee settlements. Uh, a big part of my job is talking to people um, and collecting their stories, hearing what they've experienced and bringing that out to a wider public, whether it's through the media or through IOM's own sort of communication channels. Um, I've actually never seen anything like it before. Um, it was my first, I've, I mean, I've worked 
in different places around the world. Um, but I've never, it was my first time in a situation like this. I hadn't been in a large scale refugee camp before. Um, so I have nothing really to compare it to. But when I talk to my colleagues who've worked for, you know, 20 to 30 years in this field and have been to various camps around the world, um, they said they also have nothing to compare it to because it's so, the conditions are so horrible. Um, you just have open streams of feces and human waste. You have so many children walking around um, with nothing to do and you just wonder what is their life going to be uh, with swollen bellies and just you can tell that they're chronically malnourished. You know, when people were in Northern Rakhine State in Myanmar, they didn't really have a lot of people. Most people didn't have access to um, health care. So you have people who have these chronic illnesses that have never been treated. Um, and then also they, they, because of the sort of inherent poverty, um, they also you have uh, high levels of chronic malnourishment. Um, so that's just like magnified in, in the camps with all these people living in these close spaces. Um, yeah, I've just, I've never seen anything like it before, but what, what I can say is that um, the, the local community um, who are also themselves extremely like poor, they're not like a high level socioeconomic bracket at all. Um, they were the first responders in this crisis when, you know, streams of hundreds, if not thousands of people were walking past their doors. They were cooking people meals. They were allowing them to stay on their lands and they're still doing that. Um, so that's one thing that I was very my heart was sort of warm to see was seeing how much people with so little already uh, contributed to uh, this response from the start. And I know you've a particular interest in um, women's issues. Could you tell us a bit about how the crisis, um, the effects it has had on women in particular? Yeah. So the the effects on women are quite unique to the experience for men um, and it's not saying that men aren't treated in an awful way but it's when it comes to what's happening in uh, Northern Rakhine State for Rohingya women it's 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 utterly shocking and appalling um, when we're looking at the violence last October and what started this or in August 2017 um, you're looking at systematic rape you're not looking at just one person raping one like one man raping one woman you're looking at 15 to 20 ma men raping one woman um, and this didn't isn't just happening at during these times of uh, upsurges in violence. It's also something that women have been constantly scared about um, during the more sort of peaceful times. Um, they've been sort of confined to their homes, too afraid to leave. Um, once their young children, uh, girls, would like reach sort of womanhood, get their periods, start menstruating, they would take them out of school because they'd be too afraid to leave them walking to school every day because they don't feel they would, wouldn't feel safe for them then you come over to um sorry to interrupt you is this would this be um within the community or is this uh within the rohingya community or is this like external kind of as a use of um intimidation from the Burmese army. Yeah, so it's definitely not within the community. Um, it is something that is being used to, to intimidate and keep keep the Rohingya as a group down. Um, I think men are, are um, sort of delegitimized by not being able to work, being able to make money in a traditional sense. And then women are delegitimized by being raped. Um, 
and it's just absolutely horrible. Um, one woman told me that she witnessed um, a girl who's around the age of 17 or 18 uh, being um, raped with like external objects, so like sticks, uh, the butts of guns. Uh, she also told me that she saw women's breasts being cut off uh, and things like that. It's just so extreme and horrible, it's hard to even really imagine. Um, and that happened last October, uh, those incidences. Um, but then when you come into the, they, they walk for what, whatever it is, five to 12 days uh, and they cross the border into Bangladesh. Then when they get there, you hope that, okay, maybe now they're going to be safe. Maybe now everything is going to be okay. But when you have a million people living in 12 square kilometers, um, it's not going to be ex exactly that safe for women. Within the community, you definitely do have uh, instances of domestic abuse, uh, rape, um, and then because this community is so vulnerable, um, you have external people seeing that and preying on it. So now we have a massive problem of trafficking um, where young men and women are being you know, offered jobs that maybe in another circumstance they wouldn't take. But when you're desperate and don't even have enough to feed your family, you're going to take on something that you wouldn't normally do. So that is, you know, maybe someone from the local community might come and talk to a mother and say, I know you don't have enough food. Um, I know you're struggling, um, but I know this family in Dhaka, the capital city of Bangladesh, who are nice. They'll pay you 2000 takas a month. All you need to do is sell, send them your 12 year old girl, uh, daughter. She'll, she'll work for them. She'll just clean, do a bit of cleaning and, and mind the, mind their children. And because they're desperate, these, these mothers often say yes. But what actually happens is that the, their children are never allowed to sleep. They're not fed enough. They're often raped by the, the fathers in the families. Um, they never get paid or they don't get paid as much as they were supposed to be paid, if anything at all. Um, they never get to see their parents. When the parents try and come and get them back, they're not allowed. They themselves are then beaten as well. Um, and this is just one example. I mean, it's happening in many different forms and not just to young girls, but it just shows how um, vulnerable and not protected this community are. Um, and also in relation to that, you have a massive problem of women being forced into prostitution or maybe they're doing it voluntarily, but they wouldn't do it unless they had no, no other options. And because the Rohingya community are quite conservative and a bit closed off, it's not something that they talk about. And we're trying to... Um, get people to open up a bit, a bit more about it so we can see, you know, how do we stop this from happening? How do we better protect the women in the community? Um, and this is something that we think is only going to probably get worse before it gets better. Often in times of crisis, especially at the start of a crisis, people focus on more visible things. They look at food, you know, why people are hungry. They look at the medical problems, but these underlining um, protection issues can grow and grow until once they're at the surface, they're a massive problem that's uncontrollable. As, as I understand, there's been um, some sort of a deal struck. Um, like, do you see these camps being a long-term thing or are the Rohingya going to be able to go back to their home? Or, and, and what kind of role is the IOM kind of playing in this? Um, 
so as as far as far as I know, uh, we haven't yet been contacted to work directly on the repatriation deal that was um, signed between uh, the Bangladesh government and the Myanmar government. What I do know is that if there is ever to be any return of people back to Northern Rakhine State, it needs to be voluntary, meaning that people want to go. It needs to be safe, meaning that the violence is definitely and completely over. And it means, and it has to be uh, sustainable. So the violence needs to be over for good. Not that it's just over for a week and then in another two weeks it starts again and people are displaced from their homes running for their lives. Um, Most people that I talked to told me that they wanted to go home. Um, They told me, you know, I even talked to someone who just crossed the border, told me he he had been too scared to leave his house, had waited for a big group of people to come, had walked among dead bodies to get to Bangladesh, but as soon as I met him in the arrival centre, he said, I want to go home. And he was about 70 years of age and he was like, I want to die at home, but I'm not going to go home unless it's safe. Other people you talk to, they say, you know, the safety is the biggest thing. But another big thing is we want to be recognised as Rohingya. They're not right now in, in Myanmar recognised as Rohingya. They're often seen as... Um, Emigrants from Bangladesh, because they're similar to the people, the Bengali people from West Bengal. They speak a very similar language. They look very similar. uh, They dress very similar. But they themselves self-identify as Rohingya and they want to be identified as that by uh, the wider community. Um, But having said that, some women that I spoke to who they themselves had directly experienced um, violence and sexual assault told me they would never go back. So I think it just depends on what your own personal experience is. Does the IOM, have? would they have a role in this repatriation? Um, And what would that role be? So we wouldn't necessarily have a role in the repatriation. There's another UN agency called the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, and it would be more something that they would would lead in. And I think they were mentioned in the repatriation deal. What we do more is focusing on the work in um, in Bangladesh, uh, where we lead the humanitarian response and we lead in shelter and camp coordination and also have massive programs in water sanitation, hygiene and protection. Um, but if we are asked by the governments to support something like this, then we'll do it to ensure that it it meets international humanitarian standards and that people's lives are protected and that it's definitely voluntary. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks for listening to Current. And remember, you can tweet us at at currentddr or email us at current at dublindigitalradio.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on the Dublin Digital Radio SoundCloud.